0: This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So, as Ted said, the title for this talk is Cooling the Fire. And the uh, inspiration for that name came from the word that is typically translated as enlightenment. When we, you know, we talk about um, you know, the, 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 the uh, Vesak Festival uh, at the end of the month is celebrating the, booth, the Buddha's birth, death and enlightenment um and so typically we do we do think about the buddha becoming enlightened and we might think about that as being the goal for the path and this um, when shaila invited uh, this group of us to teach this particular series she asked us to reflect about the goal and what what we explore what we think of as the goal of the of the path and how we might uh, find our way towards that so the first thing i wanted to reflect on here actually is the word the pali word that is typically, uh, that the Buddha used for his awakening. And that is Nibbana. And that word itself, the translation, the literal meaning of that word is nothing like enlightenment. You know, I don't know how people came up with that translation or why people use that, because the word itself basically means something like cooling the act of cooling and I was told by one um, colleague that he understood that this was a very ordinary word in the time of the Buddha that you would you would speak about fire cooling or uh, the rice cooling um, and so, the, the nature of things when they're heated is to cool. It's just, that's just what happens when you no longer keep adding the heat. When you no longer keep adding the fuel to a fire, the fire goes out, the fire cools. And so, the, the word for this freedom or this, what, what the Buddha spoke of as the possibility, the freedom of um, his, the freedom that he discovered. It was a cooling of something. And when, um, when asked about what is cooled, I'll read some of this. These are excerpts from the suttas about this word nibbana and what it, kind of, um, what it means to have that freedom they're from separate, it's not one passage, there's, there's four different passages here I'll read, but they kind of weave together nicely, so I won't distinguish between them. The extinction of greed, the extinction of hate, the extinction of delusion. This indeed is called nibbana. Okay, so if we replace cooling there the extinction of greed, the extinction of hate, the extinction of delusion. This is cooling. Enraptured with lust, enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, overwhelmed with mind ensnared, one aims at one's own ruin, at the ruin of others, at the ruin of both, and experiences mental pain and grief. But if lust, anger and delusion are given up, One aims neither at one's own ruin, nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both, and experiences no mental pain and grief. This is Nibbana, immediate, visible in this life, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. And for a disciple thus freed, in whose heart dwells peace, there is nothing to be added to what has been done, and nothing remains to be done, Just as a rock of one solid mass remains unshaken by the wind, even so neither forms, nor sound, nor odors, nor taste, nor contact of any kind, neither the desired nor the undesired can cause such a one to waver. Steadfast is the mind, gained is deliverance. This is peace, this is exquisite, the resolution of all fabrications, the relinquishment of all acquisitions, the ending of craving, dispassion, cessation, Nibbana. So this is a description of what the Buddha understood to be the freedom that the path that he found offered. This freedom, this release, this cooling of greed, aversion, and delusion. In um, one of the Buddha's early teachings, he used the analogy of fire for greed, aversion, and delusion. He said, everything's burning with the fire of greed, everything's burning with the fire of aversion, everything's burning with the fire of delusion. And so we could look at this nibbana as the cooling of those fires, the cooling of the fires of greed, aversion, and delusion. And so to me this conveys something completely different than enlightenment. When I first heard the term of enlightenment and you know started practicing and thought of like you know maybe someday I'll attain enlightenment or something you know I had this image of getting something of of having some particular state or being in some particular way but these descriptions speak not of what one gains but what one lets go of and that to me is is interesting because it actually leaves a lot of room for what's here when one lets go of greed aversion and delusion it means that it doesn't look one way that the that the the goal or how we are how how we might manifest in the world having let go of greed, aversion, and delusion. There's a lot of room for many different ways that would look. And that to me is inspiring. That, uh, and, and I've met some people in Burma. When I practiced in Burma, I met a number of very wise and very kind and very practiced people. And they were very different. One, one that I met, I'll just tell these stories because it feels to me like it might give a little flavor. Um, I was practicing and supporting a retreat in the northern part of Burma in the Sagain Hills. And that particular part of, of um, Burma is just like hundreds and hundreds of monasteries in the hills. You, you can just walk in the, in the hills and move from one monastery to another. And we knew some of the monks in some of the various monasteries in that area, and so we would take hikes in the hills and go visit them. One of them, at one point we were hiking, it took about 30 minutes or so to hike to this one monastery, and we were hiking and chatting along the way, and as we approached the monastery gate, um, one, of the, uh, one of the people who was with us who'd been to this particular monastery a lot turned to us and said, we need to be in silence as we walk into this monastery. We need to be in silence as we walk through the gate. And so we fell into silence. And as as I walked into that gate, just the, the kind of setting, it was kind of set in a bowl. There were cliffs on all sides, uh, three sides of the monastery. So it was kind of nestled in this area. And the cliffs had been whitewashed so that the water, the rainwater, could fall down into a catchment system and something about the, the, the visual and the feeling of walking in, I felt like I was being immersed in an ocean of tranquility. It was quite remarkable. And then I met the monk that lived there. And I got so happy just sitting with him. He was such a, a calm and peaceful person that I just felt like it was being transmitted through his being, I, I, I just was happy sitting in his presence. I just felt so at ease and so so peaceful. Another monastery we went to visit um, repeated times we went to visit both of these monasteries i 'll tell one story of the other the, one of the other monks that I met um, he had a very lively mind, and and just um, was so delighted by the world that he was pretty much constantly laughing. And we came in one day, and, and he was he was, it, it was he was probably ninety at this point. He was kind of he had shriveled in the over the years that I had known him, and he was I, he looked like this little tiny being sitting in this chair. And we had known that he'd been sick and and we asked him how his health was and... and he just laughed and... and um... I was hearing this through a translator, but it's so interesting how I feel like I heard it right from him. He said, Oh yes, I've been really sick. I almost died the other day! (laughs) I was like, wow! That's a happy guy! Just something about him was so delighted and it, it just made you delighted to be in his presence. And so in both of these cases, such different expressions of freedom. And that inspires me because it, it points to whatever expression of the release of greed, aversion and delusion that happens here that I can, I can step into I can step into whatever that is. I don't have to model any, anybody in terms of how somebody engages. There's a, there's a way in which the freedom, I think, will express itself in each of us in its, in its own way. So in those um, quotes that I read, there's also some things that I find inspiring, too. Um, the first piece is what the Buddha describes as his state of mind. The, the state of mind of one who is cooled, whose greed, aversion and delusion has been released, says, experiences no mental pain or grief. Now that might seem kind of unfathomable in a way. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't, um, wouldn't one grieve if one lost a dear friend, or, um, or saw something? You know, saw saw the state of our country. <laughs> you know, isn't there isn't grief a natural response to that? But what I think the grief here that's being pointed to, and the mental pain, the the this is this is the suffering the Buddha pointed to that it's it's included in that is a form of aversion of that the mind is rejecting something the mind is pushing something away or holding on to something that you know that the way things are the way the world is the fact that we will all every single one of us all of our family members our parents, children, brothers, sisters, friends, every one of us is going to die. And we don't know the order that's going to happen. This is truth. The state of the world as it is right now, it has come to be, it is happening. It is truth in a way. Also it is, this is what is here. And the 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 resistance to what is has already come to be is a part of at least my understanding of what the Buddha is speaking about in this mental pain and grief, that we are resisting what is already here, and that the heart is constricted or closed or rejecting something that is already here what what the um, the teachings also point to though is that when we see something we see suffering happening in the world if the heart is free from greed, aversion and delusion if the heart is not constricted by greed, aversion and delusion, that heart feels that suffering very profoundly and that's a place that we may need to come to a new understanding about what that would be, to feel the suffering of the world very profoundly and deeply without constriction. The Buddha doesn't call that mental pain and grief. He calls it compassion. The heart that responds to the suffering of the world instead of fighting, pushing against the suffering of the world. And so the, um, the movement of the heart that is free from greed, aversion and delusion, when it meets suffering in the world, the, the, the way that that heart responds, I kind of feel like the, the heart that's constricted by greed, aversion and delusion is kind of hard or encased or encrusted in a way. It feels stiff doesn't resonate in sympathy with what's happening. It may shake, or it may break, or it may be very brittle. And so the the heart that has become free from greed, aversion, and delusion, my sense of that, just from little tastes, maybe every now and then, little taste of that, little taste of the heart that is freed from at least chunks of greed aversion and delusion there's a feeling of of resonance there's a feeling of quivering the heart resonates it's like feels like like almost a bowl of jello or something you know it 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 doesn't shatter when when some kind of energy shakes it it just vibrates and wobbles and wiggles and so when the heart that is free from greed aversion and delusion is contacted by suffering it resonates with that suffering, and its it wants to act. It wants to alleviate that suffering. And when the heart, that heart that's free from greed, aversion, and delusion, contacts joy in the world, it also resonates with that very deeply. And feels the delight of that empathetic or sympathetic joy. And so the heart that is free from greed, aversion, and delusion, it's not the heart of uncaring, indifference, non-action. It's, it's the heart that is infused with the qualities of love, of compassion, of joy, of equanimity, of generosity. That connected quality and yet the the usual way that we engage the when when our hearts are are covered by greed aversion delusion you know when when they're operating from that perspective it's very difficult for that heart to fathom that there's something else another way to act in the world it's like those it's like we're 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 blinded the delusion embedded in aversion is Yeah, you got to act on me in order to be okay in your life when things are difficult. The delusion embedded in greed is, you have to follow through with me in order to be happy, in order to get the things that you want. So these, these qualities of mind, the states of greed and aversion, have an embedded delusion in them that basically believes they are the reason why we do anything. And they can't fathom that if they go away that there would be anything that we would do. Wanting The belief behind wanting is why would I do anything if I didn't want? Wanting is not going to tell you that if wanting goes away there are other beautiful motivations for life and for connection and for engagement. So the The one piece then that I find inspiring is this no mental pain and grief. What might that be? I mean, just to even contemplate what a heart free from greed, aversion, and delusion might look like. What might it look like? So I find that inspiring to contemplate. The other piece that I find inspiring is this. um, This is Nibbana, this. Experiences no mental pain and grief. This is Nibbana immediate. Visible in this life. Inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. Visible in this life. To me, that points to the possibility of living in the world, of being engaged in the world from this perspective of the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion. I mean, when I think of enlightenment, I kind of envision myself some, like floating somewhere above the planet or something, you know, not really engaged. The absence of greed, aversion, and delusion, little tastes of moments of that in life, in engagement, there's a possibility for being in the world and cooled, <laughs> free from greed, aversion, and delusion. So, um, in terms of what it means then to come to this, what does it mean to find our way to become free from greed, aversion, and delusion? Another teaching the Buddha offers around suffering. Basically, there's a connection to when we are acting motivated out of greed, aversion, and delusion, we are destined to suffer. We will suffer. We may not suffer immediately, but we will. There's, it's like we're setting into motion the seeds of suffering if we are acting out of the energies of greed, out of the energy of aversion, out of the energy of delusion. And so we're setting that suffering into motion. And so there's kind of an equivalence in a way of a mind with greed, aversion, and delusion, and a mind that in which there is suffering. And this is kind of a statement of the first noble truth. There is suffering, the truth of suffering. And the Buddha encouraged us about suffering, The encouragement is to find our way to release from suffering, but the instructions are not get rid of it. The instruction about suffering is to understand it. So this is our path. And the whole of the Eightfold Path, wise view, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration are designed to help us come to an understanding of suffering. And so to me, in a simple way, in a—I mean, there's, I, I give many, many talks about what wisdom is, what it means to understand, but let's just talk really simply right now because... There's only a few minutes left, so we'll keep it simple. Uh, so what does understanding mean? In a really kind of simple way, um, all packaged together with the, the wisdom of the Buddha and his, his Eightfold Path, is a simple instruction to be aware of the arising of greed, aversion, and delusion. And get to know what that experience is as a human experience, so that's important that that there's the there's a kind of a sense of coming into awareness around these states of mind greed, aversion, and delusion, so beginning to know greed is happening right now, aversion is happening right now, delusion is happening right now, and yet that may not quite be enough. One of my teachers has pointed out, you know, if you go to somebody on the street who's yelling and screaming and say, Hey, hey, wait, do you know you're angry? <laughs> they'll, they'll look at you kind of like you're nuts. Yeah, of course I know I'm angry. But the, they're not knowing anger in the way of what is the human experience of anger? They are knowing anger in terms of what is it going to do for me and how is it going to get me what I want. And so this is not the kind of awareness that is going to support the becoming free from greed, aversion, and delusion because essentially that kind of awareness of anger, how is it going to get me what I want? How is it going to help me? figure out this problem, or get rid of this thing, or make sure that person never bothers me ever again. How, you know, so so we're caught, if we're caught in that cycle, we are reinforcing that anger is what's going to make us feel better at some point. We get caught on this cycle. It's like, okay, we get angry, something happens, we, we yell at somebody, and they go away. And so for a little while, okay, that feels better. They're gone. So we've gotten what we wanted. And there's been a lot of mess put out into the world in the meantime. And we have also cultivated this quality of anger internally. And so what we're asked to do, what the understanding the Buddha is pointing to, in, in my sense of when he says understand suffering, it's not to understand it only intellectually, what he's talking about in terms of what suffering is. That's helpful. It's helpful to have a framework of understanding. The Buddha taught that, um, that, suffer, that aversion is a form of suffering. It's useful to have that perspective. But it's, that's not enough. Even that isn't enough. We have to actually do the work for ourselves and begin to experience and recognize anger itself is already suffering. The feeling of anger, the human experience of anger, hurts. It creates pain internally. And so this is what the Buddha asks us to do in terms of understanding our, what, what's happening in our minds, understanding greed, aversion, and delusion. He asks us to look at the human experience. What does it mean to be a human being that's feeling greed? What is that experience of greed? You know, we, we, we might not usually think about that. We, we typically, with greed, again, in terms of the reinforcement of greed, get what I want, that's what makes me happy." Um, we are following through on greed. We are looking at the things that we want and, and saying, "Yep, that's what I need, and I'm going to go after it." And, um, and that in that going after that, we are missing that the feeling of wanting is itself is already painful. The feeling of wanting. When wanting springs up, there is already suffering there. There's already a feeling of lack. There's a feeling that something's wrong, that something's off. And and as I mentioned earlier, the, the wanting, when we are caught by that view of wanting, wanting is not going to tell you, oh, by the way, if you hang out long enough, wanting will go away. And that particular desire is no longer going to be a problem. Wanting is not going to tell us that. So the, the instruction around exploring greed, aversion, and delusion in practice is to bring mindfulness to the experience. What is the experience of wanting? See if we can take our experience out of the thing that we want, the situation that we uh, in, in aversion, the situation that we don't like, take the attention out of that for a little while and turn the attention to the inner landscape. What is the experience that's happening inside now this is this this kind of instruction can be challenging, particularly around um, social injustice you know the the um it might feel like we are um, you know, in removing you know, it, I, said, I said, you know, remove the attention from the thing that we are wanting to have or to get rid of and put the attention on the, uh, the, the aversion itself. This is a beginning instruction. This is an instruction that helps us get familiar with these qualities and states of mind. And over time, what we can begin to do is recognize, okay, this thing out here. There's this thing out here and here's my relationship to it. Yeah, I don't like that. that that's happening and yeah, it feels, that feels like a bad thing to be happening and I don't like it. I want it to go away. So there's aversion there. But there's also the possibility to know the aversion while we are engaged. Engaged. So it's almost like we've taken another step back. We, we, we have some sense of, yes, there is aversion happening. And this is what that aversion is in relationship to. And we may be able to, um, to kind of recognize that that aversion has, it like puts filters on our, on, our, on our mind and has us then start to see things in a particular way. And seeing things in a particular way means we're also not seeing other things. So the, uh, that when we start to see the filters that uh, aversion creates, we, we can begin to act in a way that takes into account this aversive state of mind is happening right now. So perhaps I should take some care about how I engage. As I said earlier, the... the um, the absence The absence of aversion in the face of even social injustice does not mean that we would not engage this is This is hard to understand, but it is it is the way the heart works that when the heart does not have that encrusting of aversion and it sees suffering happening in the world, it will act so the the again when we're caught by the aversion and thinking this is wrong this is i hate this this is i need to to annihilate this situation because it is so unjust i have got to you know bring everything that i have in terms of all of my anger to bear on this situation when we're caught by aversion that's the belief that's operating that that is the only way That something would change is if I act out of that aversion. And so it takes a little bit of a leap of faith to recognize that the aversion is not the only motivator possible. And a little bit of care and caution when we see as we go through this, because as we do this process of looking at greed and aversion and delusion, it's not like one time looking at aversion that, you know, that'll do it for us. It's a process. There's a gradual learning and a gradual releasing of these energies of greed and aversion and delusion. And so there's going to be a lot of times that we are engaged in the world and we are also experiencing aversion or greed. And so if we can know, if we can have that step back and recognize, yep, I'm caught by aversion right now. That can help us to kind of balance the mind a little bit and perhaps recognize that part of what's going on in there, you know, part of what's going on in that mess around the aversion is also the, the contact of the pain of the suffering. And the the anger can be a kind of a rejection of that pain. And yet the heart that is free from that aversion is going to feel that pain and not resist it. And so embedded even in the aversive reaction, there is this kind of movement of the heart towards wishing there not be suffering in the world. Towards wishing that human beings didn't do this to each other. And so, yes, recognizing that the anger is there. And maybe, maybe we can connect to the thread that leads into that connection between us. The wish that beings be safe. The wish that beings have ease in their lives. That often the anger is, it's kind of tangled up with that, that wish. And so to, you know, in that tangle, when it's tangled up like that, I I do sometimes speak about our suffering, so any form of suffering, uh, as a tangle between basically the the, the deep, natural, human, wholesome wishes to be happy, to be safe, to be at ease, to have health and well-being, This is the wish for metta for ourselves. This is wholesome. And yet those wishes come into contact with the way the world is. Impermanent. Unreliable. Uncontrollable. And our minds get it all tangled up here. When that wish for safety meets the uncontrollability of life, It feels like it's a problem, and so there's a tangle. The threads get all tangled up there, and so any kind of suffering, my sense is is a tangle between these threads of truth, the thread of, of impermanent, unreliable, uncontrollable, the ultimate nature of experience and what's going on in the world, there are little ways, of course, we can control things. I can decide to pick up this glass. Yes, I can do that. And yet, my, that decision between that decision and the actual picking up, heart attack might have happened. And then I don't get to pick up the glass. I mean, that's a kind of a seems like a silly example, but but we do not have ultimate control. And so the the truths of impermanent, unreliable, and the um, Deep wish for, for happiness, well-being, safety. Our mind just cannot comprehend how these can simultaneously coexist. We think, we might think, and I've, I've heard people say things in meetings with students. Yeah, I know it's all impermanent and, and it's uncontrollable. And so, yeah, I shouldn't want that happiness. It's like, no, that's not the way it works. That w- wish for happiness is the wish for well-being for ourselves. That's natural. It is not going to just disappear. And there's a way that we might use these truths to bludgeon ourselves in a way. It's like, you know, oh, you shouldn't want to be happy. You shouldn't want to be safe. Yeah, I mean, trying to go to emptiness or something. Let's just, everything's impermanent. Okay, yeah, I'm okay with that. But meantime, the the part of us that wants to be healthy, happy, and safe is kind of going, what's going on here? And so the other, on the other side of it, if we are connecting to those, those, those wishes for happiness and health and safety, and we see that things are impermanent, unreliable, we might feel betrayed by the world, or might feel like the world is just wrong. And so what might it mean to hold both of these? Because both, there's the love that's very natural, that's a part of our human wholesomeness and well-being, And these truths, the the mind that can't comprehend that they can coexist gets tangled. And this is suffering. Anger is a tangle between uncontrollable and wanting to be happy, in a way we could say that. And so we've got this tangle. We might think that what we need to do is get rid of the anger, get rid of the tangle, take some scissors, cut that knot out of the fabric. But what are we doing there? It's composed of these threads. The knot itself is the suffering, not the threads. And so the, the practice of being with that anger, the practice of, of uh, opening to it and understanding, this is the human experience of anger. My sense of that is it's kind of like a lubricant or something that allows these threads to untangle. And then we have a weave in our lives between love and wisdom. They, they're woven together. Supporting each other and informing each other. But not tangled anymore. So the, that practice of understanding suffering, that's my sense of what the Buddha is pointing to. To understand the not- has these threads and that that can be known and that can be seen the understanding of that creates the conditions for the untangling it's very um gradual untangling (laughs) and the buddha pointed to that too the gradual nature of the untangling at one point he he compared uh the practice to um Uh, He he gave an analogy of a shipwreck, parts of a ship are strewn over a beach, The, the, you know, the wood and the rigging, the rope, and he said, the sun, the sand, the wind, the water, all kind of acts, the elements act on all those parts of the ship, and gradually, slowly, over the course of months, they wear away. And unpacking that analogy a little bit, that's pretty much all he said is that, you know, the sun, the sand, the wind are like, are like the mindfulness. But if we think about it, you know, think about that rope on a beach. You know, you go back one day, there's been something that's happened there. You know, the day after the shipwreck, the rope is there. It's pretty solid. It's pretty, pretty, you can pick it up and it's hard to pull apart. And Go back the next day and it's like, what's worn down? Can you see any wearing down that's happened? Probably not. But the inexorable nature of the elements acting over the course of months and months and months. You come back six months later and you try to pick up that rope and it falls apart. This is the way he described the practice working this gradual unfolding. Now, to me, this actually is happy producing this gradual nature of the path because it fits my experience. I've had a few experiences where there's a kind of a, you know, a momentary seeing of something really clearly that lets something go. But the vast majority of the the way that the practice has unfolded has been this very gradual releasing of greed and aversion and delusion. Sometimes I look back at something Kind of in surprise at one point, you know, seeing a pattern. Wow, yeah, that one. What happened to that one? I don't remember seeing it go, but I sure remember having it there and, and not even being able to call it up in that moment. And it never returning. A particular hatred at a particular person. Khan, replaced by metta. Through this gradual path, so the, I have the confidence in this goal stated as the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion because of seeing in small ways perhaps the way they, they are released. We get flavors of this, we get tastes of it maybe just in a moment, for, for a moment, a, a second of seeing how the mind, when we meet of aversion or greed, some difficult reactive state with that curiosity of, "Huh, what's this? What's this state of mind? When we we meet it that way, a feeling of a little space around it, not being quite so hooked in it, not quite so squeezed out. We feel a shift. Sometimes we might even see a particular pattern in a moment Just let go when it's met in that that way. And again, a taste, a flavor of that possibility of being free from greed or aversion or delusion. Just a little taste gives us the sense of that possibility. We get these little tastes, and in this life, this possibility...